Amen. Thank you, Diane. And thank you all very much. Great joy to celebrate with you today. Uh, and Sean, uh, our, our oldest, was born on my 30th birthday. And uh, so he, you know, that's the last present I ever got uh, because, you know, <laughs> he, gets all, he gets all the attention. So that was fun. Thank you very much. All right, uh, let's, get, let's get to work on this. Um, in your study guide, you're going to want to turn over to page 20 is where we'll, we'll actually begin and uh, have a look there. And, and really, given the pace we've been on, <laughs> we're, we're going to be moving... You're going to be dizzy at the end, right, at, the, at, at how quickly we move today, so uh, as far as that goes. So we'll get down to this here. And what I want us to do at the, at the outset is pick this up in, if you're following along and reading Romans chapter 1, we'll just begin in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 17, and as we're reading, I want to, uh, there are four places where the word gospel shows up in these first 17 verses. And so you might want to just note those because everything really in this first 17 verses is structured around those four occurrences. So we want to note the centrality of the gospel. One of the goals we have for today is to develop what we're just going to call a gospel vocabulary. So beginning in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you, and I have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so I want to draw your attention to just a few things in, uh, that we won't take a lot of time on that are in this text. Some important words that I want you to note in, and before we dig into the, the, the real meat of what we want to try to tackle today. All right, so the, the first one is the usage of the word uh, called, and that is um, verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention to that word this morning because it's typically a word which we use when we think about a vocation someone's calling. But when Paul uses the term calling, he does not use it first in the sense of vocation, like a particular task to which one is assigned and for which one is gifted, but it is used of the Holy Spirit's drawing people into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
So the very, the very and this, this is something which I, I find largely in evangelical circles, people are not aware of when they think about the call. Uh, they think about a call to something rather than a call to someone. So there is a gospel call, and the, the Christians in Rome are the called of Jesus Christ. It's a word that Paul uses with a very specific meaning. It means that God uses the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you to himself. He calls you. He calls your name, Lazarus, come forth. You are the called of Jesus Christ. And so that occurs in that particular verse, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And, and if, we, if we don't quite get that, then we're going to miss other references to the way that word is used in the rest of the book of Romans. So we want to just lay that down right away. Paul talks about, uh, and really the rest of the New Testament uses this way too, about the call. And uh, so the summons to God, the summons to God that comes to our lives through grace. Um, If you look over in Romans chapter 8 for just a second, Romans chapter 8, come over there. Um, we'll notice how this uh, works out uh, in God's plan. In, in verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. See, everybody kind of knows Romans 8, 28. It's one of those refrigerator verses, but we miss that word called. Again, here's Paul using the term not in reference to a job God gave you to do, a vocation, but a relationship into which he brought you. And then he describes how that works. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the first among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, these he also, what? Called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. All right, so what comes first? Justification or calling in the text? Calling. God calls. And that's based on his foreknowledge. So he, he, he calls you. He calls you. You're the called of Jesus Christ. And because he summons you to himself, he justifies you. He gives you this destiny in Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with using the term called in a vocational sense. This is so-and-so's calling. Nothing wrong with that. But I just want you to note the particular gospel usage of this term in Paul's letters so that we don't just blow past that word and we don't really pick up on that particular nuance, all right? So that's just a word issue that I want to draw your attention to in in the text. Then in verse 8, I want you to notice something about these Christians in Rome. It says, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, given all the background study that we've done, you'd understand how a Christian community that's in Rome, because they have faith in Jesus, and given the breadth of that community and the importance of Rome, you can understand why the witness to Jesus Christ by some people in Rome would be something that's talked about in the entire empire. So... These were a people, what Paul's saying here is that what God is doing among you is influencing the rest of the world. Now that that brings us back to the strategic importance of places. All people, all people are valuable in God's sight. In a certain sense, all places are valuable in God's sight. But some places are strategic. And one of the things that you come across in the book of Acts is that the apostles go to major strategic centers All right, where's the Holy Spirit poured out? Where's where's Pentecost occur? It's in Jerusalem. And the Spirit's poured out and the church is established. And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. And so then as the gospel breaks out, you begin to see that there are new apostolic hubs of activity that emerge. The next great one is in Acts 11, and that's Antioch. And then a little bit later in Acts 19, the next great base is Ephesus. And then at the end of the book of Acts, we finally find Paul in Rome. He's in Rome. He's made it there uh, after this long delay, and he's in a rented house. 
And even though he's under house arrest, he's in his own rented quarters, and people are coming to him to visit him, and he's sharing the gospel. And Rome becomes a new apostolic center of activity. So if you read the book of Acts, it opens in Jerusalem, and it ends in Rome. And between it are Antioch, right, and Ephesus. And these are the major apostolic centers of the ancient church. So these particular places become what you might think of as hubs, These are hubs of activity where there were large numbers of Christians and a significant number of important ministries that fanned out from those places. A good example of this is in Ephesus. It says that Paul uh, rented a lecture hall and he taught there every day. And because he taught there every day, all of Asia heard the word. Now, Asia refers to what you and I would think of, remember, as Turkey. So how is it that being in one spot causes the gospel to be heard in this entire region? He teaches every day in one spot, but it impacts the whole region. Well, when you, when you look at what goes on in that text, you'll see that places like Colossae and Lydia and, and, Lydda and other places are hearing the gospel because of what's going on in this one place. So I don't want you to miss as well that Rome is a strategic center. It's going to become, at at the close of the book of Acts, later after this letter, uh, it's much later after this letter, a primary center of gospel activity. So that kind of strategy is important. God not only chooses people, he chooses places. And and you might want to think those, sometimes in mission circles, we talk about gateway cities uh, or world cities places that where, when the gospel comes to it, it impacts an entire region and in some, sometimes can impact the whole world. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Nashville has the potential to be a world city? Yes, it does. Why? What, what happens here that goes all over the world? Music, right. So, so there, this is already, in some senses, a global city or a world city. It's not, a global, not really a global city in the sense of population. There are many cities in the world far, far larger than Nashville. So it's not just a population issue. But for Rome, Rome was the world's first mega city, right? So over a million people live there. Greater density than New York City has today. Greater population density, people living on top of each other than New York City does today. And what happened in Rome fanned out all over the world. Uh, when we lived in Austin, go to a football game, and the voice of Walter Cronkite, great University of Texas alumni, would, would come on over the jumbotron and say, what happens here changes the world. <laughs> yeah, I'll hook them. That's right. And um, unfortunately, in recent years, it wasn't changing the football world much. But... Um, so, so what happens in a place can have an impact far wider than the place. And that's one of the things that Paul's noting here in this text. I want you to notice as well just one more thing before we dig into it, and that is the mutuality of their fellowship. One of the things I said, you know, at the, in our very first session is that I'm among you as a student. We're learning Romans together. Every time I come to Romans, I'm kind of blown away by it, and I, I don't want you to think I'm some master of Romans because I, I, don't, I don't know that it can be mastered, really. And, um, uh, but, but one of the things you have to remember is this. Listen, in this kingdom, all the shepherds are sheep. All the shepherds are sheep. I was with a, a group of ministers the last couple of days, and um, we were talking about vulnerability and... Uh, the need for people to know our own brokenness, our own fallenness, our own sins, that, that what it means to be a pastor is to lead the church in repentance, right? And uh, one of the guys had an interesting experience about a month ago. Uh, he was just sharing with the church his own sense of brokenness, his own struggles, his own failures, and why he needs the gospel preached to him in his life, which is going to be an important theme for us today. And uh, some, some of the members of the church had a relative along with them who'd grown up in the Roman Catholic Church. And um, they'd ne- never been in a Protestant church or an evangelical church or anything like that before in their lives. And, and uh, at the end of the service, they said, well, ha- you know, what'd you make of the service? How'd you do? That kind of thing. And he said, well, he said, that was different. 
And he said, well, well, in what way was it different? He goes, well, I've been doing religion for a long time, and I know how this works. When we go to church, we confess our sins to the priest. Today, your priest confessed his sins to you. I've never seen anything like that in my life. It was an an eye-opener. See, we're all sinners. We all need the gospel. And we have this mutuality not only of the need for grace, but also a mutuality of benefit. I want you to think, just think for a second. We've done all this biographical background work on Paul. How gifted was he? Right? But what does he say? When I come to you, he says, I'm going to come full of the blessing of Christ. Verse 11 I want to impart a spiritual gift to you that you may be established. But then look what he very quickly adds to that. That is, let me define my terms here, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So there's a mutuality of of benefit, of grace, of sharing together. Paul doesn't say, I can't wait to get there so you can benefit from my remarkable intellect, spiritual experience, and revelation of Jesus, you poor, pitiful people who know nothing, right? There's, right? I mean, that's not his approach. His approach, is, his approach is, I can't wait to get there. What I have, I'm going to share with you because I need what you have to share with me. That takes us back to what we were looking at Sunday on the spirit and the body that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So this sense of mutuality in Paul is very, it's a very important part of his theology. When he talks about spiritual gifts, when he talks about benefit, he never, ever sees himself or any other person as someone who has the goods that can just show up and be the delivery boy for everybody else, and aren't you glad I came? It's all we have something we have to give each other. So around the table this morning, no matter if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm, am- I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm s- these people are so lucky to have me at their table. Um, if you're there or if you're sitting there thinking, I'm the most ignorant Christian on the planet, uh, no matter where you think you may be along the spectrum, everybody at the table needs everybody else at the table. That's part of what it means to be apostolic. Christians, all right? So you can kind of look each other in the eye and go, man, we really need each other, and I'm glad we're together, and that's an important part of this. All right, so those are just some general textual sort of things that really aren't kind of part of the central lesson, but you don't want to get through these verses without, without noting those, those things. They're not in your outline. That's bonus coverage, I guess you could say, that's, that's here for us today. Um, when we think about Paul now, we want to just, you know, kind of quickly make sure that we are up to speed on who he is in these introductory verses. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle of Christ, set apart for the gospel of God, and so on. What, what do we, this is at the bottom of page 20 in your study guide. Just a couple of things to remember. First of all, of course, he has, we, we mentioned this in passing last week, he has four names. Paul has four names. We only know two of them. He has four because he's a Roman, a Roman citizen, and because he's also, in addition to being a Roman citizen, he's Jewish. So he has a Jewish name, which is Saul. He's Saul of Tarsus. But he, as a Roman, would have had three names. We, and, and this was a very common. I mean, for, here's a good example. Gaius Julius Caesar. That's how historians, if they were using the full name, it, you know, most people might say Caesar. Some people might say Julius Caesar. But if you're writing the whole thing out, it would be Gaius Julius Caesar. I don't know what Paul's last couple of names were. Nobody knows. But the first one's Paulus. Now, what's interesting is that Paul, after his mission activity in the Jewish part of the world, where he's referred to as Saul, as he moves out into the Gentile part of the world, into the more Roman world, of course, what name does he use? He uses his Latin name. So it's not Saul, even though he's referred to as Saul, in the book of Acts, until he is sent out from Antioch into the wider Gentile world. When he leaves Antioch on his mission trip with Barnabas, he moves from being Saul of Tarsus to Paul. He begins to use his Latin name. Now remember, Saul, he's named for King Saul. Remember, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul is described as being head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. That's the way the book of Samuel describes him. And What's interesting is that Paul's name, his Latin name, Paulus, means small. 
So he's named for someone who's tall, but his Latin name means small. And so it's, it's, there's not only a kind of geographical issue here, but Paul, from this moment on, will not then revert back to Saul. He won't revert back. When he gets back to Jerusalem, later in the book of Acts, he's still Paul. He goes with small the rest of his life after he gets out into this mission field, which means that he had a new identity. He had a new name. He had a new way of viewing himself. He also had a new orientation to Jesus Christ. He says that he's his bond slave. He's his love slave. He's the one who has come and dedicated his whole life to him. This bond servant, this bond slave, is someone in the Old Testament uh, who had been an indentured servant. You read about this in the Old Testament law. So there would be a period of years in which he would serve his master, but then he had the option. He could, after that period of indentured servanthood, be liberated and go out. But, but, he could say these words, I love my master and I love my master's house and I want to stay. I will stay. And if that was the case, then they would take him to the village center where there was a stone column and they would take his ear, the earlobe, and put it against the stone column and with an awl, pierce it. And that piercing of the ear says he marks him as a bond slave, a slave because of love, because of love. I love my master, and I love my master's house. Paul says, I love Jesus. I love Jesus' house. This is where I want to, this is how I want to be the rest of my life. My ear has been pierced. Now, that language is used about Jesus himself in Psalm 40. Now, there's a very interesting thing that happens in Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, the Messiah says, my ear you have pierced. That's the Hebrew version. There's a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint version, it says, a body you have prepared for me. And of course, you know, people go, well, well, well which is it? Is it my ear you have pierced or my body you have, a body you have prepared for me? It's quoted over in the book of Hebrews about Jesus offering himself up on the cross. So in the Hebrew version, it says, my ear you have pierced. But the Greek text translates that over and says, a body you have prepared. Well, how do we get from an ear to a body? Well, on the cross, what's pierced? Brow, hands, feet, side. He's pierced top to toe. So it's his whole body that's pierced. That's why Paul can use language like this in Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So one of the things that Paul wants to communicate to us is that one of the things it means to be a believer is that we're crucified. We're pierced. We're pierced people. We love Jesus. Jesus loves us, but we love Jesus too, and we want to be with Jesus, and that means we're crucified with him. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We're his. And then outflowing into that, Paul has a new relationship to his work. It says that he's called as an apostle. There's a use of the word calling in terms of vocation. And there it it means he's an apostle as an accredited representative of Jesus. Now, if you look down a little bit further in the verse, he talks about his apostleship. And he says in verse 5, Romans 1 verse 5, through whom we have received, talking about through Jesus, through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship. And this apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. So one of the things that happens in the New Testament is that it's recognized that Peter has a particular ministry among the Jews and that Paul has a particular apostleship, a sphere of influence more among the Gentiles. Now, it's not exclusive. It's not as though Paul never preaches to Jews. That's not true. He goes to the synagogues and preaches all the time. And it's not as though Peter never preaches to Gentiles. In fact, he's the first person who preaches to Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. So we're talking about primary spheres of ministry. So Paul's primary area of apostleship is among the Gentiles. That's where God's given him the grace to do his work, and it's to bring them to Jesus Christ. 
And then Paul has a new relationship to the world. He says here in verse 1 that he is set apart for the gospel. We looked at all that last week about Paul's use of the term Pharisee there. Underneath that phrase, set apartness, Phariseed to the gospel, Paul is a, a, a gospel Pharisee. He is set apart. He's a separate one. He's a holy one. So those are Paul's new relationships. Now, if you go over to page 22 in your study guide, um, we want to begin to draw out some of this usage of the term gospel that's so important for Paul. Now, when you hear the word gospel, you might think of a music style. I don't know. Probably not. I don't know what you think of when you think of gospel. What, what images? The gospel. It's a, it's, it's a word which, for us, has deeply religious and cultural uh, connotations. But from a historical standpoint, if you get into dictionary denotation, uh, the, you know, the actual meaning of the word, I mean, at its most basic meaning, it means glad tidings. Or good news. And that news element I'll come back to in just a moment. How many of you were with me in the study on Isaiah? Okay, so here, here's something you'll remember. The word gospel shows up in Isaiah twice. And in Isaiah, it, it, it says a couple of things about the gospel. It says, God says to Isaiah, get up on a high mountain and declare the gospel, the good news to the people of Israel, and say to the cities of Judah... Here is your God. Here's the good news. Here's God. So the good news is actually a revelation of who God is. In another place in Isaiah, the good news, here's the gospel. He says, he says uh, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. Gospel, announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness, saying our God reigns. It's the announcement of the reign of God. There's another word, the Greek word that would, that's used in the Greek Old Testament. There is the kingdom, the basileo, the kingdom of God, the reign of God. So gospel for Hebrew people is an announcement. It's news about God's kingdom, his reign, and it's, a, it's an announcement that reveals who God is. Don't miss that revelation part. So it's the gospel reveals and the gospel announces. It's an announcement that brings a revelation. And it's a revelation of who God is. So for Hebrew people like Paul, all right, when he thinks of the word gospel, he thinks the, the, the reign of God, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed to people. So that's why in the gospels we, we hear that Jesus is preaching the good news, the gospel of the the kingdom, the reign of God. So the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand and so on. So the word gospel for Hebrew people has that kind of bearing. But for the Romans, and remember Paul's a Roman, there's another part of the world that, that's going on with this, and they use the term gospel, but they use it in a little bit different way, though it has, it has some relationship. It's still an announcement. It's an announcement by the town crier of good news, but it always was good news about a person, the emperor, okay, the person with authority. And it was the announcement of a couple of things. It, it involved the emperor's victories over his enemies. That's the first thing. When there was a great victory, then the town crier, the herald, would stand up and announce gospel, good news. This general has won a great victory on behalf of the empire and our emperor. Good news, a great victory has been won. There was another area in which gospel was announced in Rome, and that was the birth of the emperor's son or the marriage of an emperor's son. Good news, a son has been born to the emperor. Good news, the emperor's son is to have a bride. So I want you to think about that. So from a Hebrew standpoint, it's the kingdom has come and God is making himself known. And in the Roman terms, it's our enemies are defeated and the son has been born to the, to the emperor and he has a bride. And the Christians went, 
That sounds like our story. Because the kingdom has come in Jesus. And he's the victor at the cross over all the dark powers. And we're his bride who's been given to him. So this term, gospel, is picked up by the early Christians out of that Hebrew and Latin combination and used to describe the message that they bring to the world about Jesus. And we need to remember that it is news. Let me put it to you in the most simple terms I can. The gospel is good news about what God has done, not good advice about what you're supposed to do. And that's the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion will relentlessly give you advice about what you're supposed to do. If you would just do this and this and this and this and this, then you will be right with God and you will avoid purgatory or whatever. I mean, make your list. If you, and, and listen, this doesn't happen. This happens in a lot of Protestant circles. You know, the five steps to a victorious life, the four secrets of a greater mystical relationship. If you will just do this, this, and this, if you just put in these coins, then the Coke will come out at the bottom. If you will just do this, this, and this, your children will come out perfect. How many of you have tried that, right? Right? Okay, you know, I mean, my children will come out. I'd just like the demons to come out of my children. I mean, what? What's going on here? So, so there's all of this kind of advice. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not advice about what you're supposed to do. It's news about what God has done. And this gospel of this news about what God has done needs to keep coming back to us as believers. All right. Let's look at the centrality of the gospel. Paul's life purpose is summed up in this work. He says, I'm set apart for the gospel, verse 1. I'm set apart for the gospel. Let's look at what he says about the gospel. He calls it, in verse 1, the gospel of God, of God. That means its origin is not with people. This is not a story which humans have invented. It's an announcement which God looks to make. It's a transfer of the announcement that the angels made to the shepherds. There were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night out in the fields. And suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth what? Peace, goodwill towards men. It's God's declaration of peace. The war is over. It's not peace like peace. I get a peaceful, easy feeling. Because that's not what happened to the shepherds. It says they were freaked out. They were terrified. It's not about a peaceful, easy feeling. It's it's the declaration that the war between humans and God is over. Remember, remember the use of the word gospel in Isaiah? How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness, saying our God reigns. So the angel comes and announces peace. And the shepherds are, because unto you is born this day a, what? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The the Son has been born. So they rush off to see. So here's good news. Now, this message, which has its origin in God, is going to be in the lips, not of angels, but of people. Though the term is the same, angelos, messengers, messengers. It's the very same term. Angel is just messenger. And, And humans are messengers of the gospel as well. And so, so we take the gospel to people. Can I, can I just say this? You, you could look at the people at your table today and say, you look like an angel. And you would not be beyond the mark at all. Because that's, in a sense, what every person in this room is now. You're the messengers of God bringing the good news of God's peace to people. So it's the gospel that has its origin in God. Here's the second thing. It's promised in the Scriptures Set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament. So what Paul says here to the Romans is that the Old Testament has within it the gospel. What's the Old Testament about? All right, you all just been studying Isaiah with me. What's the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus. He's every page. That's what, he, that's what the Old Testament's about. It's a preparation for and a revelation of Jesus. 
When Jesus, after the resurrection, sits down with his apostles, it says he opened opened up the scriptures and then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, all these things are written about me in the scriptures. So Luke 24, all these things are written about me in the scriptures. So it's, it's it's a preparation for the Messiah and it's a revelation of the Messiah. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he'll tell them, this is 1 Corinthians 10, all these things, talking about Israel's experience, he says all these things were written for our instruction. And there are many Christians who ignore the Old Testament, but we ignore it to our peril and our impoverishment. You go, I don't want to read the book of Leviticus. It's all about washing kidneys and killing goats and stuff. I mean, I don't want to mess with that. But if you, if you, don't, if you don't live there, if you don't live in, the, in all of that, you're going to miss out on so much of how God is revealing Jesus Christ to us, the necessity for, our, for, for who he is and so on. So it is, it is news that is from God. It is news that is anticipated and foretold. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And then Paul says, it is the gospel of God promised by the prophets Then look at the next phrase, concerning his son. All right, so this is news about the son of God. And he tells us two things about the son of God. And the first one is not one that most people probably would have started with. You don't hear this, generally speaking, today. Most people, if they think about how to present the gospel to someone, this is not where they start. But it's where Paul starts. He says, the gospel concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and then, he says, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So he starts with Jesus as Son of David. Why does he start there? And then secondly, he refers to Jesus as Son of God. Well, remember, he's just said that the gospel is promised where? In all of those Old Testament prophets and scriptures. So, if you go back in the Old Testament, you have several prominent figures, Moses, Abraham, and so on. From a royalty, emperor, kingdom standpoint, though, who stands out? David. When we talk about kingdom and gospel, that's David. So he talks about the Messiah being the son of David. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and he says, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And he makes a covenant with David and he says, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne forever. Now, this gets back into the mix of what we talked about Israel feeling like they were in exile still. All right, so remember all this background information. They'd come back from Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar carried them away. That's the end of the Davidic line. That's it. There are no more kings from the Davidic line. Even when they come back, even though the descendants of David are noted, nobody is made a king. The Jews don't have a king. They have a governor, but they don't have a king. And after the Persians come the Greeks, and after the Greeks come the Romans. And, they, and you go, well, yeah, but they had King Herod. yeah. But he's not from the line of David. He was a puppet king installed by the Romans. He was actually, he was actually an Idumean. So he's not, he's not even Jewish, much less of the line of David. So the people in this period, the Jews, held that their exile was not fully over because God had promised that there would be a king over the people who was the son of David. And that king wasn't there. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Paul says here in Romans 1, he's born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So with the various genealogies that you read, the two in Matthew and in Luke, we see the descent from David, and it leads us to the birth narratives of Jesus in both of those Gospels. He's the son of David. And that's why over and over again, the people are acknowledging him as the Messiah. When they cry out for healing, when they cry out for, the, for mercy, they say, Jesus, son of have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. In Jesus, the people had an embodiment of the hope that the king of Israel was coming. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Hail to the son of David. Here's the king coming into Jerusalem. And they were right. Here is the king. It's a different kind of king. He's not riding a war horse. He's riding humble and lowly on a donkey, just the way Zechariah the prophet had prophesied. So what do we need to gain from this? A couple of things. Continuity with the promise. I put this in your study guide. Here's the second thing. Identity with humanity. David, being a son of David, means he's human. Born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. We must not lose sight of Jesus' full humanity. In Hebrews chapter 4, um, let's, let's just go over there because I think it's one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, let's look at what this says about Jesus' humanity and the way in which that makes him someone who comes to our aid. We have someone who is not distant from us, but someone who is uh, like us. Let's, actually, let's look at Hebrews 2 as well. We'll look at 2 and 4. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, uh, well, it's always hard to interrupt these apostles, isn't it? Um, verse 14. Let's go to 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Why did Jesus become human? He became human with one particular emphasis in mind here in verse 14, so that he might die. He might die. That's the purpose of his incarnation. It's not the only purpose, but it's the purpose that's highlighted here. And then liberate those who through the fear of death have been subject to slavery all their lives. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then in chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Do I I need to ask for a show of hands among those who have been tempted since Sunday? Has any, I won't ask for a show of hands if anybody's falling. <laughs> I mean, if we're breathing, we're sinning, right? I mean, I mean, okay. So, but here's, what the, here's the lie. Here's the big lie. Only you have that temptation. Okay, now the next time you hear that only you have that temptation, you need to have this answer right with you. Yes, I am the only one at my table who has that temptation. But Jesus also had that temptation. So even if all the other people at your table did not, he did. Every temptation which any human being has ever suffered, he suffered. And that's why he became one of us. He became one of us and took on every anxiety, have you had suicidal thoughts? What did, what did Satan tempt Jesus to do? Throw yourself, throw yourself off the highest part of the temple. Just throw yourself off. You know, somebody, they'll, they'll catch you. Go for the power. Take it. It's yours. It's really yours. I'll give it to you. Take it whether it's money or sex or whatever it is, take it. Give up. Just throw yourself off. Whatever temptation we feel, he felt. He is one of us. 
So in continuity with the Old Testament, he's the son of David. And in identity with us, he is the son of David. He's one of us. He is a sympathetic high priest. And then finally, of course, as the son of David, he's royalty. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the head over all things. He is the one that rules the nations. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of peace there shall what? Be no end. On the throne of his father David, Isaiah 9, 7. The wise men come to Jerusalem. What are you guys doing here? Well, we are looking for the one who has been born, what? King of the Jews. Where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king of the kingdom? He's the son of David. So continuity, identity, and royalty. Then chapter 1, verse 4, he says he's not only the son of David, he's the son of God. Now, that's where most people begin. Most people begin with Jesus as son of God, but Paul begins with son of David, and then he moves to son of God. He's the son of God... And the resurrection demonstrates this. The resurrection, he says, he's declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, or it's another way of saying by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit raises Jesus from the dead, and that is God's open declaration that Jesus is not only 100% human, he is also 100% divine. He's the son of God. He's not only son of David, he's the son of God. And he has power. And he is reigning now, not only on David's throne, but the throne of heaven. He is the resurrected and reigning Lord. Now, he says that in that final phrase. He says, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, remember, he's writing to people in Rome. The Romans have a common confession. Their common confession is, is that someone is Lord. Who's Lord? Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. Paul says, Paul says, Jesus is Lord. He is higher than Caesar. Now, if you're living in Rome, if you're a believer, how many church buildings do you walk past every day on your way to the market in this first century? How many crosses do you see? Well, you hope not to see any. Because if you see a cross, it probably means somebody's hanging on one. You're surrounded by the images of all those gods. In other words, there's nothing in the public imagination. There's nothing in the architecture, the structures of society to tell you, to reinforce for you anything other than this idea. Caesar is Lord. These gods and the Roman state are all-powerful. And if you mess with us, we will crush you. And Paul says, Jesus is Lord, and he is going to crush them. Now, I want you to imagine that. Almost every member of your congregation is a slave. (laughs) You're small in number. You have divisions. You don't have a New Testament. You don't even have that. Tell tell me what your chances of success are that you're feeling in this hostile culture. And yet I have Christians today who walk around the middle of Tennessee here in the little bubble of Christendom going, well, we've just never had it so bad. I just don't know if we're going to make it. I'm not sure if we can hang on. Are you, are, you're kidding me, right? I mean, you're saying this from your Barca lounger with your remote going, I don't know, man, it's just awful. Have you seen the news today? I mean, holy moly. Are you, I hope the rapture comes by next Tuesday, you know, that kind of thing. So what do we learn here? All right, I want to give you a couple of things. We're going to skip over. We're going to come back to this stuff next week on all the 1 through 10 stuff. But I, I want you to go over, <coughs> pardon me, <laughs> to this particular summary. I just want you to think about this as a summary. The source of the gospel 
is God. The substance of the gospel is Jesus. The gospel concerning his son. So it's the gospel of God. The substance of the gospel is Jesus. It is concerning his son. Third, the scope of the gospel. It's for all nations. Look at verse um, 5. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So the scope of the gospel is for all people. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And here's the strength of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, he says. He says the gospel is the power of God, verse 16. Not the gospel contains it. The gospel is the power. The message itself has effect. It is unto an effect. The source of the gospel is God. The substance of the gospel is Jesus himself, the son of David and son of God. The scope of the gospel is the whole world. And the strength of the gospel is its saving power. In the declaration of the message is the power to save people. That's a good summary of it. Now, what we'll do is we'll pick this up in, in, with number um, four next week when we come, <coughs> come back together and we'll work through the rest. All right, let's stop there. Questions? Pyrus, huge. Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat the question. So the, the, the question you're asking is, you know, the, the letter goes originally just to the church at Rome. <clears throat> then how does it go out to the whole empire, right? Well, that will take a long time. Paul has that one location in mind. He's writing really just to them. Um, Copies would have been made at that point. But it's not necessarily that he's writing to the Roman Empire. He's only writing to those believers in Rome. And that's it. But what happens is the early Christians know that this is something that is for all of us. And so it's preserved. And it becomes the most important of Paul's epistles to the church at that time. Does that help? So he doesn't have the whole empire in mind. But in writing to them in Rome, he's already said what you guys are doing is influencing the whole world. So he knows that if you, kinda, if you sow a seed there, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact. Yeah. Others? Other questions? No? Ah, okay. <laughs> Doug? No, it's good. <laughs> 